Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke 15, which is where we'll spend our time together this morning. Luke 15. We are able, as a Southern Baptist church, to request statistics uh, and reports from the North American Mission Board, which is the North American mission arm of our convention. And they will send us, like, demographic reports for our area. And so I did this recently for Seaford, and a lot of it, it's, like, really minute details that are not particularly helpful for us as a church, but there's also some big picture numbers in there, and and, um, the one I was most most interested in was this, that uh, 62% of the residents of Yorktown, Virginia do not claim to be religious. That is what this report revealed. 62% of the residents of Yorktown, Virginia do not claim to be religious. 38% do claim religious affiliation. The biggest group in there is us, okay? It's Baptist. Uh, 12% of that group that does claim affiliation are Baptists. And then you have uh, about 6% that are non-denominational Christians. And then the next biggest group are the Catholics. And then after that, uh, some of the other denominations. But uh, the bottom line is if you were, statistically speaking, to stand 100 residents of York County up Uh, then just over 60 of them are going to tell you that they do not have a religious devotion of any sort. They don't have a religious experience, no real religious creed, Um, at least not enough that would make them claim affiliation with any church, any denomination, or or really even any religion. Um, So what that tells us then is that the majority of the people that you and I live with are lost people. The majority of the people that are our neighbors, they are lost people. The majority of the people that you drive uh, in traffic with every morning are lost people. The majority of the people that you sit in this line uh, to pick up kids from the elementary school uh, in this parking lot uh, with every uh, weekday afternoon uh, are lost people. They don't know Jesus. Now, here's what I also want to say to you this morning, is that what we see in this passage today and what we see throughout the Bible is that the nature of God is to forgive these people. The nature of God is to forgive lost people from their sin, to be compassionate to them. These people are Republicans, and these people are Democrats. They voted for McAuliffe, and they voted for Yunkin. They are straight, and they are gay. They are rich, and they are poor. They cheer for the Cowboys. They cheer for the Steelers. Okay, Regardless, the Lord wants to save them. He wants to save them. He wants to redeem them. He wants them to walk with Him. This is the nature of our God. He is a compassionate Savior. And I think some people think of God as the mean man in the sky who is just waiting to crush those who have committed sin uh, against Him. Right? He sits in the heavens. He is just uh, biding His time until He can drop His wrathful hammer on your life Uh, and then cackle like Thanos as he does it, right? Like, this is not the biblical picture of the Lord, though. I think that's a caricature that a lot of people have in their minds, but it is not the biblical picture of the Lord. Here's what we find in the Bible. In Psalm 78, verse 36, But they flattered him with their mouths, they lied to him with their tongues, their heart was not steadfast toward him, they were not faithful to his covenant, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. 
he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. In Psalm 86, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that verse from Psalm 86 echoes the refrain that we see throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It is the way that God revealed himself to Moses. And then that is the most often repeated phrase that has to do with the character of God for the rest of the Old Testament. So, So God elects in his word to reveal himself most often as a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And more than that, the scriptures give us a picture of a God who is not just a savior, but he takes immense joy in the act of saving. So in Zephaniah 3 verse 17, the prophet says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So a mighty God who saves and then rejoices with gladness over the people that He has saved. A God who will actually sing over the people that He has rescued. It's a beautiful picture. And it's a picture confirmed by Jesus and His storytelling this morning. Luke 15 gives us three stories, and we're going to look at two of them this morning, and then we're going to give the entire time next week to the third story, God willing. So uh, let me read for us, starting in Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus has an audience here. That's really interesting, and we see that audience revealed in the first couple of verses, and uh, I think that both audiences approach the scene with plenty of scandal attached to their character, and his subject matter is specific to the audience. So we see in verse 1, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners who are there. They are treacherous traitors in the eyes of their fellow Jewish people. They extorted money, these tax collectors, from their own countrymen in order to line the pockets of Rome as well as line their own pockets because they would skim a little off the top for themselves. And the sinners who hung out with the tax collectors were irreligious people. They were undesirables. And the iniquity and the transgressions of the sinners and the tax collectors, it wasn't hard to identify. Like if you hung out with them for a little bit, you just knew, yep, these are people who don't know God. These are people who are lost. Okay? Now, on the other hand, we have in verse 2, scribes and Pharisees who are also there. 
grumbling about the fact that Jesus would eat and receive people. Uh, he would eat with and receive people like the scribes and or like the uh, tax collectors and the sinners. These scribes and Pharisees, their sin would not be as easy to identify. On the exterior, they appeared to be very moral men, right? They, they appeared to be very religious men. And they should have been the ones reaching out to the tax collectors, reaching out to the sinners, telling them the truth about God's holiness and the truth about their need for repentance. But instead, they refused to even associate with people like this. They wouldn't spend any time with people like this. They referred to people like this as the people of the land. In their own writings, it says, When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him. Take no testimony from him. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him the custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. They looked at the people that existed uh, in society with them, like the tax collectors, like the sinners, maybe like the 62% of lost people that we have living in our county who claim no religious devotion, and they said, those are the people of the land. We do not associate with people like that. We don't talk to people like that. We separate ourselves from people like that. Now, were the tax collectors and the sinners and all the other people of the land unworthy of God's grace? Well, of course, as are all of the children of Adam and Eve. But God had offered a way of grace to sinners. And the Pharisees should have been the ones teaching what God had required in order to walk with Him. Instead, they created a barrier between themselves and anybody who could not keep the details of the law both God's law and their man-made law, they had stacked on top of God's law. Anybody who couldn't keep the details of the law as well as them, they put a barrier between themselves and those people. They would not have anything to do with those people. They should have been shepherds to Israel. And instead they failed because they ignored the needy sheep. Ezekiel prophesied about this sort of failure from the religious leadership of Israel. Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves? Should not shepherds feed the sheep? So they failed Israel by not feeding the sheep of Israel with the word of God. In Ezekiel 34, verse 4, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they didn't just fail Israel, uh, they oppressed Israel. It was more than just ignoring them, not giving them what they need. They created more problems for uh, Israel by leaving the weak and the sick and the injured and the lost to fend for themselves. They oppressed them, they ruled over them with harshness. Is this not a picture of the Pharisees? Is this not a picture of the scribes and the religion that they held to? But God is not a God who's going to leave His people without a shepherd because as we've already seen this morning, He's a compassionate God. So here's what the Lord says through Ezekiel. Behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. 
For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So what God's promising there is the shepherds of Israel failed by oppressing those that they should have been caring for, therefore God himself will get the job done. Now how's he going to do it? Well, he makes it clear in verses 23 and 24 of Ezekiel 34. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, capital D, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So how is he going to shepherd Israel himself? He's going to give them David. Now here's the odd thing about this passage. As Ezekiel prophesies this, David has been dead for half a millennium. He's been dead for 500 years. And so we can't be talking about that David. He's got to be talking about someone else who will come, who will be from David's line, from David's tribe, the tribe of Judah. One shepherd who could handle the pastoring of all the sheep of Israel. Who could this be? Of course, the answer is it's the one telling the stories in Luke 15. It's the Lord Jesus. Jesus had the heart for the lost, for the tax collectors, for the sinners that the Pharisees should have had. That the scribes, as the keepers of the law, should have had. Jesus is the Father's answer to the question of who will care for my people since the shepherds have failed. He's the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. So in this mixed crowd of the failed religious leadership of Israel and the tax collectors and sinners who are desperate for somebody to save them, somebody to come and to redeem them with the truth, Jesus tells three stories. And in this crowd, as he tells these three stories, uh, each parable serves as both an invitation and an indictment. They're an invitation to sinners. They're an invitation to the tax collectors. They're an invitation to anybody who's far from the Lord to come under the shepherding care of God. And yet the parables are also an indictment. They are an indictment of the leaders who failed. Failed to properly care for Israel. All three stories in Luke 15 have a rhythm as the invitation and the indictment are being set before the audience. Uh, The rhythm is this. There is loss. There is searching. There is finding. There is joy. And all three stories. So the two we look at this morning and the one for next week, there is loss. There is searching. There is finding. There is joy. That's the cycle. So both of the parables that we have this morning begin with loss. On one hand, we have a man who loses a sheep in verse 4. On the other hand, we have a woman who loses a coin in verse 8. So we start with the man and the lost sheep here. The man is likely a shepherd. It was rare for any one person to have a hundred sheep. And if you did have a hundred sheep, that meant that you were filthy rich. Okay, Not like Jeff Bezos level rich, but like definitely you know top 5% level rich. Okay? And if you were that rich, you weren't going to be out in the field tending the sheep your, your, uh, yourself, 
okay? That wasn't going to happen. So you hired someone. So what normally would happen in a village is they would pull their money together and pull the sheep together, create a flock with their sheep, and then hire shepherds to guard the flock, to watch over the sheep. And this shepherding was hard work. And yet, despite the fact that it was hard work and so necessary, it was looked down on by the people. It was about the lowest occupation you could hold without being an outcast on the level of a prostitute, on the level of a tax collector. Shepherds were not educated. They were viewed as being dishonest and unreliable. Again, odd because you're putting your riches literally in their hands, and yet they're viewed as being dishonest and unreliable. Now, here's why they were viewed that way. They were so devoted to the cause of shepherding and caring for the sheep that they did not have time to participate in the religious culture that was going on around them. They couldn't be at the feast days because they were caring for the sheep. They couldn't be at the high holy day because they were caring for the sheep. They missed out on so much of the keeping of the law because they were with the sheep 24-7. Therefore, all of society looked at them and said they are, they're unclean. And since they're unclean, you can't trust them. You can't rely on them. And the Pharisees certainly wanted nothing to do with them. The shepherds definitely fell within the category of the people of the land. And for Jesus to even ask these Pharisees to imagine themselves as shepherds, it would have been an offense to them. One of the sheep got away from this shepherd. And he's got to go get the sheep here in this scene. If this man doesn't leave his flock to go and find this sheep that had got away, the sheep's going to die. Sheep were defenseless animals. They couldn't fend off a predator on their own. They also were prone to lying on their sides after getting a full belly, taking a good nap, and then sometimes the weight would start to shift and they'd have all four hooves, I think that's what sheep have, right? They have hooves. All four hooves would be up in the air and they would get stuck that way. And they couldn't, they couldn't roll themselves back. And if you ever are, you know, happen to be on a farm and see a sheep laying like this, go, I don't care how uneducated you are in farming, like there's nobody more uneducated than me in that stuff. I don't care how agriculture you are. Go and grab that thing by the hooves and lay him back down on his side and then run away in case he gets crazy or something. But that's what I would do, you know. But do that because otherwise that sheep will die. And it will die quickly. If, if a sheep gets stuck in that position, its blood will stop circulating and it will not be long until it meets its demise. So the shepherd knew, I've got to find the sheep. If I don't find the sheep, it's going to end up on its back or it's going to end up in the mouth of a wolf. So I've got to find the sheep. That's the shepherd. On the other hand, we have a woman in the second story. She's got ten silver coins. She loses one. The coin is a drachma, which is Greek for a Roman denarius. It's basically a day's wages for a common worker. That's about $200 for an average American today. Now, I don't know about you. I'm in a financial situation where if I lose $200, I am still quite devoted to finding it, okay? So if I lost $200 in my house, I'm going to flip that house upside down trying to find that $200. Like, I'm not going to bed that night without finding that $200. And in this society, which relied so much on bartering, money was really hard to come by. If you lost a day's worth of money, that was a really big deal. And so uh, this money 
it very likely could have been part of her dowry, a gift given to her on her wedding day by her father, and it could have represented for her future security. So regardless, she goes on a desperate search for it, just like the shepherd looking for the sheep. She lights a lamp to look for it. First century houses in that region did not have windows. Even in the daytime, they would have been very dark. So she lights a lamp. She looks for it diligently. Uh, The Greek word that translates to diligently, it means to look carefully. It means to look hard. This is an intense search for this lost coin. So two stories we have here. In both stories, something uh, very valuable has been lost, right? A sheep is a living thing, so it's valuable in that sense, but it's also valuable because it represented somewhere between $75 to $150 for its owner. A drachma is a day's wages. So they've both lost something valuable. Both things lost have owners who deeply care for the thing that has been lost. And both lost things spark a very careful search. And in each story, the picture that's being painted is symbolic. Christ represents, or is represented by, I should say, the searcher in each story. He's the shepherd out trying to find the lost sheep. He is the woman who is searching for the lost coin. They're desperately lost. They need someone to find them. And the tax collectors and the sinners are represented by the lost sheep and the lost coin, right? Jesus is out looking for the, the lost sinner in the same way that the shepherd is out looking for the lost sheep and the woman's looking for the lost coin. So we have two different groups of people in the audience. You have the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes. You have the down and out tax collectors and sinners and you have Jesus speaking to them Jesus he's represented in these two parables the tax collectors and the sinners are represented in the two parables my question for you is where's the Pharisees and the scribes are they represented well the answer is no they're not represented now in the third story next week that we're going to look at the the parable of the two sons or the prodigal son might be how you know it, they're represented in that one. We'll see that next week, but they are left out of these first two stories. They have no representation. They have no symbol in the story. Now, why is that? What's the implication of that? The implication is that they don't care. They are asked to imagine that they are someone that they are not. They're asked to imagine that they are a shepherd who cares about lost sheep, but they are not shepherds themselves. They have failed in that regard. They're asked to imagine being a woman who loses a coin that she treasures. They don't treasure anything outside of themselves and their position and their agenda. Jesus will search for the souls of tax collectors and sinners. The way that the the man and the woman search for the sheep and for the coin... Because just like the man and the woman in the parable, Jesus cares for what is lost. He cares for the tax collector. He cares for the sinner. But the Pharisees wouldn't lift a finger for these people. Therefore, they're not in the story. He leaves them out on purpose. I love this picture of Christ. He's a pursuing Savior. He's a loving Savior. 
He relentlessly loves sinners. He's the better David, the shepherd prince who searches for every citizen of his kingdom to bring them in under his reign of peace. I also love, whenever I talk about Jesus, I'm going to talk about him as being sovereign. Right? Because I read in the Bible that he is. I read in the Bible that God sits in the heavens and that no purpose of his can be thwarted. Right? That's made clear in the scriptures that whatever he decrees from the heavens is going to happen when it's his sovereign will. I love that. But we got to be careful believing that God is sovereign and that salvation is his work from beginning to end is right to believe because this is the way that the scriptures reveal it to us. However, in believing God is sovereign, you might be tempted to believe that he is also detached. That he sits in the heavens and that he moves the chess pieces around with very little feelings about what he's doing. And what we see in this text is that while Jesus is sovereign, he's also searching. He's going out into the pasture to find his lost sheep. He's looking for them. Right? He, he's, he's, he's getting down on his hands and knees and he's, he's looking under the couch for the lost sinner, right? He's looking down in the cracks of the floorboards for the lost sinner. He's looking under the bed. He's turning the, the lamp on to shed light into the darkness to find the lost sinner. God sends his son to find his bride and to bring her home. Because he loves her and because he values her. And he wants her to do what she was made to do, which is to worship him. Now, let's talk about the joy over what is found in both stories. And let me illustrate this. Uh, I'm an Apple user. At this point, I'd love to actually go all in with Google and get out of the matrix. But I'm in too deep, okay? They've got their, 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 their uh, fingernails in me too deep. Uh, and so I was at a Nationals game a few years ago, and I, I lost my Apple AirPods. If you know what Apple AirPods are, they are in a case that looks about the size of dental floss. They're Bluetooth wireless headphones. cost about $150. So I'm at the game. Game's over. Nats won. Okay? It was actually the night that uh, they were 19 and 31, and they won game 20 and went on to win the World Series later that year. And so I was at that game, the 19 and 31 game. They won the game. I was excited. I was like, all right, they you know, finally won after being terrible all of May. And I um, started heading for the exit, and it's fireworks night. And if you've ever been to fireworks night at a ballpark, they turn all the lights off, and the only light you have is the light of the fireworks. And I get to the, the gate, and I'm about to walk out, and I reach down my pockets and realize I don't have my headphones. And it's that feeling, you know that feeling, all the blood kind of drains out of your head and your whole body is like, goes cold and you're like, oh my gosh, I lost this thing, cost $150. So I get on my phone because Apple's supposed to be able to tell you where those headphones are at on your iPhone. And I get on there to look and the battery on the headphones is dead. So it lost track of them. They'll know where they're at. It says the last time they were seen was, you know, this place or whatever. And it was very nondescript. So I go on a search. I start you know, going back through, and lo and behold, about 75% of my way back to my seats, I see them laying on the ground, and I found them, and I couldn't believe it, and so then I open the case up, that's the moment of truth, you're like, are they there, right, and I open it up, and they're there, I, I, I was amazed, all right, this, by the way, is only about six months after my dog chewed up one of them, and I had to get it replaced, so my whole walk back, I thought, 
Katie's not letting me spend any more money on these AirPods, okay? Like, this is it. If they're gone, I'm just an adult who can't handle having Bluetooth headphones. That's the end of the dream, okay? So I found them. I was so excited. I'm in two different text threads, and I'm like texting my old college friends as well as uh, some people from this church I'm in a text thread with. Like, I'm blowing up both text threads and telling them the story about this. Why? Because something I lost that I valued was found and I'm rejoicing, and I want to share that joy with people. Now, that's over a cool piece of tech that retails for about 150 bucks. But that's actually pretty similar to losing a sheep in the first century, cost-wise. That's pretty similar to losing a day's wages, cost-wise. So just like me at Nats Park that night, the shepherd and the woman rejoice when they find what is lost. They call on their friends to rejoice with them. This is what we do when we recover things that we value. The shepherd leaves the 99 to go and find that one that got away. And when he finds that one, here's what he would have done. He would have tied his, his hooves up. He would have laid the sheep on his shoulders so that the stomach of the sheep is resting on his neck and then the hooves would be coming down over his shoulders then he would have carried that sheep all the way back to the village or all the way back to the flock and the sheep would weigh on average about a hundred pounds so this was this was a, a, a labor to get this thing home it was work but as soon as he does he calls all the friends and neighbors together so they can share in his joy. The woman lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully. She does the same thing when she finds the coin. Gets all her friends together so they can rejoice with her. Now, here's the thing about these parables. The Pharisees would not be able to deny the ethics of the story. Like, they would have said, yeah, sheep's valuable. You've got to go find the sheep. They would agree. A drachma is valuable. It's a day's wages. You don't just let it go. You've got to find it. So they would have been okay with the story up until the punchline. Because here's the punchline of the parables. Punchline 1, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Second punchline, verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents if i rejoice over airpods if a shepherd rejoices over a sheep if a woman rejoices over a coin all things with similar monetary values how much more does god rejoice over the salvation of the souls of sinners right the celebration must be beyond comparison you you cannot compare airpods or a sheep or a day's wages with the value of a person's soul that is going to exist for eternity somewhere be it heaven or hell so how much more does god rejoice then over the foundness of lost souls and why would this be so offensive to the pharisees Why would this punchline, the application of the story that Jesus tells, why would it have grated against them? Well, because they do not rejoice over the repentance of sinners. They they do not rejoice over people turning away from sin and to God in faith. Do you know what they rejoiced in? 
They rejoiced in the idea that they did not need to repent. That's what they rejoiced in. They didn't rejoice in people repenting. They rejoiced in the fact that they felt like they did not need repentance. And they didn't care if other people repented or not. As long as they could justify themselves before God and retain their position of power, everybody else is free to perish. They made up a game of morality loosely based on God's law. And the only people that they would accept and that they would be around are people who could play that game. And the only people they valued and cared for are people who could play that game. Everybody else they viewed as the people of the land. And they separated themselves from them. And they let the sheep die on their backs in the pastures. And they let the coin stay lost. And so what Jesus is exposing here is that they are out of step with God. You cannot be in step with God and not care about sinners. And Jesus is exposing that. But they're also out of step with God because they don't think they are sinners. They're the 99 who believe that they don't need saving. And it is offensive to them the idea that God would walk away from them and say, okay, you want to justify yourselves, you have fun with that. I'm going to go get the one that knows he's lost. And it absolutely made them want to kill Jesus. It so devastated their entire system of morality and religion that they said, this man must die. This man, who would view God as someone who loves people like this, we got to get rid of him. He's got to be extinguished. Because they did not view God as someone who they needed to save them. They did not view him as a God who would sing over their repentance. They viewed him as someone they could manipulate. Someone who would value them based on their ability to keep the rules. A God who would rather stay with 99 rule keepers and let rebels die. In the end, the parables are a story of our own salvation. The Lord searched for us. The Lord found us. The Lord brought us home. The Lord rejoices with the angels over our salvation. And listen... That's not just your story of salvation and my story of salvation. That's the only story of salvation. Nobody's found on their own. No one is good enough. No one can justify themselves. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All are lost in the pasture of brokenness. All are lost in the floorboards of sin. All need for God the Savior to send His Son to come and to die and to recover us and redeem us and reconcile us to God so that we would be found. And when that happens, heaven throws a party. God celebrates with the angels. Heaven rejoices when people repent and they are saved. And so these parables are the gospel story. He comes and saves us. And he's looking at these tax collectors and these sinners. And as he speaks this parable to them, he's inviting them. He's saying to them, you're the lost sheep. You're the lost coin. 
And you have the opportunity to be found. But he's also indicting the Pharisees on charges of being shepherds who have no heart for the lost and who will leave the sheep lost and who will leave the coin lost and who have no concept of God as their Savior. Now here's what we have to ask ourselves. Do we have the heart of the Pharisees or do we have the heart of Jesus? As a church, do we have a heart that will leave the 99 to go and find the one? Will we light a lamp and sweep and search for wandering souls? I want to commend our church body. I know I'm running a little late, but bear with me because I I really want to say this to you. I want to commend our church body on this Christmas lights outreach situation, okay? Not just the five or six people that are absolutely, um, they're they're working dogged hours to get this done, and and I just can't, can't say enough about those folks. They're amazing. But, but I want to say something about all of you, because we brought this to a members meeting. I think it was back in May that we brought this to a members meeting. It may have even been February. I'm, my mind is, you know, it's been a long year. But uh, when, I remember when we brought it to the meeting, I know that it was difficult for some of you to embrace because we are doing this as our big outreach instead of the Christmas musical we had done for so many years. For many years, that was the way that we reached people in our community, and it was very effective and had a big impact upon people. But we had seen the effectiveness of that wane as an outreach. Not in the quality of what was being done, but just as an outreach. And that's really not reflecting badly upon our church. It's just society changes. People change. And we live in a culture now where people are not pre-evangelized and are not predisposed to walk into a church building. But we figure they might just pull into a parking lot and watch some Christmas lights and give us the opportunity to send our members to their car and to show them love and to invite them to come and join us for Christmas Eve and to maybe, uh, by God's grace, they're going to scan this code and, and go to uh, our website and hear the gospel as well. And so we are pivoting and we're doing something else to reach people at Christmas. You know what that requires? That requires change. Here's the thing about God's people. And it's not just you and me. It's God's people all the way back, right? In the Old Testament, when you read about them in the wilderness, and they're going, boy, if we could just go back to slavery in Egypt where we at least had a bed to sleep in and some warm meals. God's people do not like change. We struggle with change. But you all said, let's do it. Let's invest the money. Let's pivot. Let's do something different. And there wasn't a lot of fuss about it. I think that that shows a heart for the lost. Because a church that doesn't have a heart for the one that's out there and would rather remain with the 99 goes, we're not changing anything. We're going to do things the way that we've always done it. And churches like that will end up closing their doors. We have to be willing to change, not the message, but the way that we preach the message in order to be able to reach the culture that is around us. And you all said, let's do it. Let's keep that heart as a church as we go forward. And I want to challenge you this morning as a believer, do you have any sacred cows in your heart this morning that are not a biblical conviction? You can't point to chapter and verse, but it's something we've always done, and you go, boy, if we ever stopped doing that, I'd leave this church. It's time to slay that cow. 
it's time to say that unless it's chapter and verse, unless we know it's biblical, it's a biblical conviction, we cannot do this and still be honoring the Lord and be obedient to the Lord. Unless it's something like that, and if it's just a tradition, to say, I'm going to value this as long as we do it, but if we ever have to do something different in order to reach the one, I'll do that different thing. Make that decision in your heart now. Don't wait until the change actually has to come. Right? Make that mindset change now. I also just want to make this application for anybody here who doesn't know the Lord this morning. If you read the story and you go, I identify with the tax collector and the sinner. I'm them. I'm lost. I'm down and out. Religious people generally don't really want to have anything to do with me. I'm pretty rough around the edges. My life's a total mess. And you identify with the tax collectors and sinners, you identify with the lost sheep, and you identify with the lost coin, then I want you to understand this morning that there is an invitation being extended to you by Jesus in the story. To not be lost anymore. To know the Savior that has died on the cross in your place and has taken the punishment for your sin. A Savior who wants to redeem you and then sing over you. Who wants to save you and throw an angelic party in heaven to celebrate your salvation. If your brokenness is not working for you this morning, and I know it's not because I've tried it, today is the day of salvation. If you're a part of the 62% of Yorktown that claims no religious devotion, the Lord wants you to repent. And if you're a part of the 38 that claims religious devotion, but you know in your heart that you are far from the Lord and you've never actually repented of your sins, your name just might be on a church roll somewhere, today is the day of salvation. Agree with God about sin, turn to Him in faith and be forgiven. And understand that it is His nature to forgive you. He longs to rejoice over you. Repent and rejoice in Him, the Good Shepherd. This morning, if you would like to respond to our message um, as the worship band is getting ready to come up, uh, I want to encourage you to send us a text or an email at connect at seafordbaptist.com. Get in touch with us so that one of our pastors can reach back out to you. We'd love to talk with you more about knowing Jesus, about what it means to be saved and to be forgiven of your sin. After the service today, I'll be at the Meet the Pastor table. I'd love to talk to you there as well uh, about any questions you have about the sermon. If you are interested in joining our church, and that's the next step of commitment that you would like to take, uh, I will be at the table. I'd love to talk to you about that as well. But uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer together right now and ask Him just to do His work through His Word. Father, it is so encouraging to open our Bibles and to see that Your heart is for sinners. That You, Lord, do not want us to perish, but You want us to be saved and I pray, Father, that you would draw people to yourself through the gospel. That you would draw people to yourself through the power of your word. The Pharisees wanted to kill your son for what he said about people being forgiven. About your heart, Lord, for sinners. Uh, but we, Lord, want to exalt your son. We see this amazing shepherd the perfect version of David who has come 
and he has truly sought out the lost sheep of the pasture to bring them home. And it just makes us want to make much of him, to let the whole world know who he is so that they could all be known by him, so they could all be found. We want more heavenly parties over the repentance of sinners. Stir our baptism waters, Lord, along those lines. And give us divine appointments this week to be able to be the hands and feet that go and reach out to those that need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.